it's good to see all of you here this morning. We're in this series, One Life, and I know we've had a couple really exciting weeks uh, with Lee Strobel and the panel, and I appreciate so much uh, those opportunities to grow. But we need to get down to the brass tacks about how do we begin to do and live out our One Life Challenge. And so this morning, I want us to take a look at the important theme of developing friendships. It was Tuesday, September the 11th, 2001. The Twin Towers in New York City had fallen and our nation's airports at that time started shutting down and turning away flights. Nobody knew how many other potential airborne bombers there were. 38 U.S. bound flights were still over the Atlantic Ocean and could not turn back and so they needed uh, a place to land uh, and, and the closest and, and fastest that they could get the better. The only one that fit the description that had a runway long enough was Gander, Newfoundland. Uh, the airport in Gander during World War II was the largest airport in the world at that time. It was the stop-off point, the refueling point for U.S. and Canadian fer- uh, ferried bombers and fighters to, who were being sent to the uh, war front across the Atlantic. Consequently, it was the only airport that had a runway capable of handling all these commercial transatlantic flights. And so all 38 of those airliners landed at Gander. So here's this community of 10,000 Canadians who suddenly become home to 7,000, nearly 7,000 displaced people who are flying in and really not aware of everything that's going on around the world at that point in time. But the folks up in Gander were up to the crisis and the challenge. In a community where everyone seemed to know each other, spoke to everybody on the street, never locked their home or their car doors, the world ended up on their doorstep and they opened up their arms. Churches, schools, civic organizations rolled out the red carpet. The local hockey arena was transformed into the world's largest refrigerator. Families opened their homes to complete strangers. The shelves on the local grocery stores and the local Walmart were bare in a matter of hours as the good people of Gander reached out in sacrificial friendship to the people they had never met. Donations of bedding and towels and clothing poured in, and within a matter of hours, Gander was nicknamed Casserole City. Many Ganderites took families in and have stayed in touch with them ever since those moments. And if you ask them whether they would do it again, they almost seem insulted at the question. Of course they would do it again. Kindness is a part of Gander's DNA. They don't know any other way to live. So how would we react in just that same kind of crisis moment? Well, I suspect we would respond in a similar manner because I don't think that Gander has a corner on the market when it comes to kindness. But here's the truth that we often overlook or sometimes just simply miss altogether, and that is we are already in a crisis, a spiritual crisis, and we at times seem to be oblivious. And I'm as guilty as the next guy. Sometimes I just don't see it. It's because the crisis doesn't register with my five senses. It's easy to dismiss. 
But friendship in this crisis is far more important than the 9-11 crisis in Gander, Newfoundland. You see, the crisis that I'm talking about is a crisis of faith. Now, it's comfortable inside these walls. Some of you are saying, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I wish we had reclining pews. Uh, I wish the temperature was always constant. I, I'd really like to have shorter sermons. Yeah, I know. That's not the kind of comfort I'm talking about this morning. It's comfortable inside these walls because we're gathered with people who think for the most part like we do, who hold to the same values for the most part that we do. It's actually one of the reasons I believe God gave us the church to begin with. There is encouragement inside these walls. Being with one another who share similar values and faith make it feel like home. That's why the book of Hebrews is so insistent on us maintaining a relationship in the body. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 says, let us not give up meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing this. Instead, let us cheer each other up with words of hope. Let us do it all, in, uh, uh, all the more as you see the day coming when Christ will return. You see, this is family for us. And it is family to whom we turn when we seek encouragement, spiritual help, prayer support, and courage to face our challenges. That's what family does. Families often quibble about the little things. Hey, but when push comes to shove, family is there to support. So let me remind you once again, if you're not in a life group here in this body of believers, you are missing the best opportunity for support and encouragement and doing life with other people who've got your back in the tough times of life. I like this Japanese proverb. A single arrow is easily broken, but not ten in a bundle. When you are bundled together with other Christians, you're going to make it. But what about those whose hearts are seeking after God but aren't there yet? Who aren't a part of a family like this? Their doubts keep them at arm's length from the church or keep them at arm's length from other Christians. But they genuinely want to discover answers to their spiritual concerns and questions. Who is there for them? I, 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 I like Brian. I was, I was so grateful for our panel last Sunday who spoke frankly and graciously about their spiritual doubts and their struggles with faith. If you were here, I hope you listened carefully to some of their comments. They certainly grabbed my attention. Comments like this. Remember that I'm a person, not a project. We all have stories. Care enough about me to hear mine. Show me Jesus through your actions and attitudes. Andre, who was over here on the end, spoke about how painful it was when his family gave him the cold shoulder when he expressed his doubts. Julie related that she'd grown up in a church that had conditional love. And when she didn't quite measure up, the love ceased. Now, they shared a whole lot more thoughts, but, but those are the ones that really stood out to me. And I think in every case, a genuine Christian friend, a genuine Christian friend, could have made the difference in their life. And by the way, can I tell you this this morning? I was truly grateful for the way you embraced each of these young men and women. I was not surprised by your response. I know you, but I was grateful. Just a side note, you will undoubtedly remember Julie's story. 
about the people that were witnessing to her. And when she said she wasn't interested, they took away the, the balloon flower that they'd made for her little two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. At the end of third service, somebody in this congregation who had heard that story, in the meantime, had gone to the store and came back with a handful of Mylar balloons. Gave a red star balloon to everybody on the panel, but had a pony balloon and two other red stars and gave it to Julie and said, take that home to your little girl. I am so excited to be a part of a congregation where somebody would think to do that. Okay, so here's the crisis as I see it. If we truly believe that being in a relationship with God the Father happens only through the forgiveness secured by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf, and if we truly believe that there is an afterlife determined by whether or not we acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord in this life, then what does it say about us when we keep that knowledge to ourselves? What kind of a person lives as if that's a non-issue? What kind of a person says, I'm glad I know the Lord, but I don't want to risk anything to help you find him? What would you think of me if I had the cure for cancer, but was unwilling to share the cure except with members of my own family? What kind of a friend is that? So as we look to the future and about the quest to be sincere, authentic, spiritual influencers in this community, it begins, folks, with developing genuine friendships. And you say, well, is that even a biblical concept? Why, absolutely. You don't even have to look at any passage. All you have to do is just look at the life of Jesus and you can be convinced of that very factor. Everyone wanted to be friends with Jesus with the exception of the stodgy, resentful religious leaders who were threatened by him, but everybody else wanted to be friends with him. Consider what Jesus said on the night before the cross. He's looking at his disciples in John chapter 15. This is what he said. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. What about the man whose servant and friend Jesus healed? Or the demon-possessed man who Jesus restored with peace and tranquility? Or the woman who had spent every penny that she had trying to find a cure, but was healed by Jesus with the simple touch of his robe? How about the lame man who for the first time was able to walk home under his own power? Or blind Bartimaeus who was suddenly able to visualize the difference between red and blue and green? Or the deaf who for the first time were exposed to the singing of birds and the laughter of little children. Or the broken-hearted widow who was on the way to the cemetery to bury her own son who was given him back to her when Jesus raised him from the dead and turned a funeral into a party. If you could ask any of them, is Jesus your friend? What do you think they would have answered? Of course Jesus is my friend. Look what he did for me. Jesus spent time with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, people that he recognized as his dear friends in this world. 
21 times in the letters of the New Testament, we find this phrase, dear friends. Paul used it. John used it. Peter used it. Friendship is greatly encouraged in the scriptures. Why? Well, let me answer that with a question. What does God care about most? Maintenance on the gold streets of heaven? The prairie dog problem in the southwest U.S.? Helping NASA discover things about Saturn that we need to know? No. God cares about the souls of lost people. That's at the top of the Father's list. He cares more about those who have yet to come home than anything else. That's what we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, God is not delaying because he's just delinquent. He's delaying so that as many people as possible will find him. So what can we learn to help us become a friend? Because I really believe it's more important to be a friend than it is to have a friend. So let me tell you the story about five guys long before they started their hamburger chain that we find in Matthew chapter 2 and or Mark chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 9. Mark's got the longer account. So if you're going to go home and read it today, and I hope you will, turn to the Mark chapter 2 story. You see, the news was out. Jesus was back in Capernaum and he was preaching in one of the local houses. Probably Peter's to be just guessing. A crowd had squeezed its way into the house, filling every nook and cranny. And those who couldn't get into the house were standing at the windows and the doorways so that they could hear. I'm telling you, sardines packed in mustard sauce have more room than what that house did that day when Jesus was teaching. So the quintet arrives a little bit late. There are four guys carrying their paralytic friend on a litter, and of course they can't get in. Nobody makes room for them. You know, you come first, you get the first best seats of the house. And in houses of that day and time, trying to get four guys carrying a litter with a paralytic guy laying on it would have been hard to begin with, but they would not be deterred. They had waited too long for this special moment. They didn't know how soon they might see Jesus again, if ever. This was their last opportunity to help their friend. And so undaunted, they headed up the outside stairs to the flat roof on top, and with their bare hands and fishermen's knives, perhaps, they began to dig a hole in the roof. Now, the house is uncomfortably hot to begin with. It's packed with sweaty people who smelled like fish. The windows and the doorways are blocked by other sweaty, fish-smelling people. Capernaum was a fisherman's town. All right? So the air was stifling hot. You can just, I mean, this is just a recipe for... Ooh, room rage as people. And then you've got dust and and bits and pieces that begin to fall from the ceiling. And I have a feeling that the people were just getting a little bit upset about this whole thing. They tore away until they had room enough to lower their slightly embarrassed paralytic pal. And so with halting motion, they winch him down in front of Jesus. Now, again, I think that everybody is disturbed in the room because the the sermon has been interrupted. See, they were different than we are today. You look for interruptions to sermons today. I know that. But they were were kind of uh, messed up over that. 
But I think Jesus is loving every minute of this. He knows what's going on. He, he senses what's going on. I'm surprised if he was able to, to keep the smile off his face as all this was developing. And so he, the guy comes down before him, and Jesus does what only Jesus could do. They were hoping for a healing, and Jesus gave him two. And the first one was, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. The better of the two options. And then he said to the people, so that you'll know that I have the power to forgive sins, I said to you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Wow. It's, it's interesting to me. They wouldn't make room to let him enter, but they split the way to let him get out. You see, when Jesus does something powerful in your life, it, it just makes a difference on everybody. So what can we learn? Okay, well, if we're going to develop friendships, this, here's some things that I want you to see that grow out of the story that I think just jump out at things that we can do. Here's the first one. Find a way to connect with other people. If you're going to develop a friendship, you've got to find a way to connect with other people. And here's part of the problem, and that is that once you've been a Christian for, for about seven years, it drops off to the fact that you probably have any non-Christian friends. So it's going to take some effort. You say, well, I don't know any non-Christian friends. Well, that, that's just the point. The point is we need to start developing relationships with people who are not believers. And if you've been in the body for any length of time, you probably don't have very many non-believing friends anymore. So this is going to take some intentional effort, and you're going to have to find a way to connect. So here's the first thing. Look for people of a similar age category. I suspect these five guys were close in age. Maybe they'd grown up together as friends from early on in the community. You see, people of a similar age and, and life stage category connect easily because they share much from a common period of history. They like the same music, clothing styles, first cars, third grade teachers, favorite movies, and the list goes on. So you may be able to connect with somebody near your age or locality. If you, if you come from the same area, you know, you have a connectedness. Uh, sometimes we'll have folks that will end up here uh, from Du Bois County or even more specifically my hometown of Huntingburg. And when they do, I feel like that there's an, a ready-made connection. When I meet them, even if I hadn't known them previously, I can say, there's just, I feel like they're family. It's because we share a common locality. Neighbors, coworkers, people you've traveled with, that's locality. Hobbies and interests. Uh, in my office, I have a whole lot of uh, die-cast metal cars, and I have some die-cast uh, metal airplanes, and I have a uh, wooden uh, replica propeller given to me by a friend that sits in the corner. And, and all of these things are there for a reason. First of all, if I have them at home, Elsie doesn't want to dust around them. Um, and so it's better to put them in my office from that standpoint. Don't blame her for that at all. But more importantly, they're there because they become a connecting point for me. When uh, people walk into my office and discover that I like cars and airplanes, especially guys, it, it starts some immediate conversations, and it, it, it is a connecting point uh, for us. Suffering is another connecting point. It's true. Misery loves company. Hurting people gravitate toward others who have experienced a similar trial. Cancer patients connect with others who have gone through chemotherapy and radiation. Struggling parents long to hear how other struggling parents handled wayward teenagers. When you lose a loved one, you gravitate toward others who have had a similar experience in losing a loved one. 
So take inventory this morning of your generational uniquenesses, what you enjoy doing, where you've been in your life, and what you've experienced, and take those characteristics to help you connect with other people who desperately need you as a friend. And when you develop that friendship, the door may open so that you'll be able to speak Christ into their lives. Here's something else out of the story. Find a way to meet needs. Now the problem isn't finding a need to meet, it's taking the time to look for the need. Uh, I seem to have more than I can get done in one lifetime. Consequently, I don't often look beyond myself. I'm so busy getting stuff done that I have to get done that I don't look for the needs of others accidentally or casually. Unless they're made obvious, I can easily ignore them or dismiss them. And since you are as obviously as busy as I am, it's probably true for you too. Which means that we have to become intentional about looking to the needs of others. By the way, how, how many needs did you see in this passage? When we read this passage, we think of one need. The paralytic needed to walk again. But, but that, that's, that's a very uh, sheltered view of this passage. Uh, actually, the... the the paralytic had two needs. He only knew about the one. Jesus gave him two answers, and the most important one wasn't the one he came for. The forgiveness of his sins was far more important than the being able to walk again. But Jesus met two needs. The crowd inside the house longed for courage to face their fears, answers for their daily problems, and hope to not give up in a tough life. They needed Jesus. The four friends needed affirmation that what they'd done by tearing up a neighbor's roof was okay that it was worth what they had risked. The teachers of the law were so blinded by their own skewed interpretations that they missed the lawgiver himself. They needed to see the truth. And as Tim wisely pointed out, the homeowner needed help repairing his roof. So see, no matter what you see, we often miss a lot of needs if we look too casually. There were a lot of needs in that room that day, but we missed most of them in the excitement of the paralytic's encounter with Jesus. It's not much different today. So open up your eyes and look around. Look for the anguished parents who are watching their child die of inoperable cancer. Or adult children who are caring for a parent stricken with Alzheimer's. Or the 62-year-old who has lost a job but can't quite retire, nor can he find a new job at that age. Or the widow or widower who is left to struggle through his or her loneliness. Just open your eyes. The needs are staggering, but that's the perfect place to begin a friendship. In the crisis moments, most people are desperate for a friend to help keep them grounded and help keep them focused on God. Here's something else. Find a way to encourage. When I read about these four guys who carried their friend to Jesus, I look at them as encouragers. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced this morning, folks, that if Jesus had not healed their friend, if for some reason they couldn't get the hole in the roof and they'd have missed this opportunity, it still would have been a good day. Because the paralytic couldn't help but be encouraged by the fact that he had four friends that seemed to be undaunted in helping his life change. And even if your life doesn't change, when you have four friends who are like that, you are blessed and encouraged. 
I had an inflatable punching bag when I was a kid that looked like a clown. I don't know if any of you have ever seen one of those. You could push it. You could plow into it. You could hit it. The nose squeaked when you punched it. It was always able to right itself. It had a rounded bottom, and once you filled it with, with air, no matter what you did to it, it always just popped right back up again. And the reason it did was because the bottom was filled with sand that became a ballast that would cause it to right itself no matter what had happened to it. Now, if you live long enough in this world, you'll feel like that inflatable clown. You'll be pushed and pummeled and plowed into and punched. And when something or someone knocks the air out of you, when you feel deflated, you see, a friend is the one who comes along and lifts you up. It is the sand in the ballast. Encouragement is the sand that becomes the ballast of life that keeps you coming back up even in the toughest of moments. And a friend is the one that keeps coming with that encouragement. I've always liked this quote from Ella Wheeler Wilcox. She put it this way. A pat on the back is only a few vertebrae removed from a kick in the pants, but it's miles ahead in results. <laughs> find a way to encourage. Uh, last thing, find a way to be like Jesus. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times. Looking at the life of Jesus, it is apparent that he viewed being a friend as incredibly important. We've already seen that he addressed the disciples as friends. He was a friend to the little children who just seemed to flock to him. The Jewish leaders accused him of being a friend to the tax collectors and sinners, an accusation that Jesus never refuted. And though he would momentarily raise Lazarus from the dead when he stood outside the tomb, the Bible says that he wept for his friends. Even when Judas approached him in the garden of Gethsemane with the kiss of death, Jesus said, friend, do what you came for. I guess what I'm trying to say this morning is take the approach that Jesus took to others. Don't wait for others to approach you. You reach out first. Open your eyes. Genuinely see people you encounter in every facet of life. Ask the questions. When do, you, do you talk to the person at the gas station when you fill up your tank? Do you ever go in? Ask about their family. Ask about their lives. Do you talk to the server at the restaurant where you like to eat? Who do you see on a regular basis that you just completely ignore because you don't take time to reach out? Don't let friendship happen accidentally. Be intentional. When you are intentional, seemingly accidental encounters will happen. Be interested in others first instead of expecting them to be interested in you first. Listen more, talk less. Practice consistency in your behavior. Be hospitable to those who may not be able to return the favor. Seek first to understand before you seek to be understood. Love the unlovable unconditionally. That doesn't require that you condone what they do. Jesus didn't condone. He told people to go and sin no more, but he did it as a friend. Now, I wish I could tell you that I do all these all the time. I don't. I should. But I get busy with life just like everybody else. I forget what really matters. Eternity. And some people are not ready for it. And I've got the cure. His name is Jesus. But only through friendship am I going to be able to share that. 
I want to change the way I look at those around me. How about you? Proverbs 18.24 says, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's what I want to be. That's how Jesus lived and acted. How about you? By the way, you don't have to move to Gander, Newfoundland to be a friend like that. We can do that right here. So I got two assignments for you. Here's the first one. This week, find somebody that you see but you don't see and begin to unfold intentionally the opportunity for a new friendship. And second of all, we're going to start doing some training on how to develop such friendships. And so beginning this Wednesday, October the 4th, from 6 to 8 in room 140, and every Wednesday after that until Thanksgiving, also on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock in room 361, and then later there'll be other trainings through the week. But it's a two-hour time. I'm asking you, everybody, to at some point in this next few weeks to go through one of these classes because we want to do our best to help equip one another to be the best friends possible. All for the sake of Jesus Christ. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.